This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my delight to welcome you here. Now, on this programme, as you'll recall, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask her to read one of her own poems that's been published in the magazine. And my guest today is Mattia Harvey, who was awarded the 2009 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award for her collection, Modern Life. Welcome, Mattia Harvey. Thank you. Now, the poem you have chosen to read today is by W.S. Merwin. It's a poem called Vixen. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with this poem. Well, I remember when this poem came out in The New Yorker that I was really sort of stunned and excited by how breathless it was. And I cut it out of the magazine and it's in one of my scrapbooks somewhere. So it's one that sort of stayed precious to me. And since then, I often teach the book in my poetry classes. I have an image, you know, I wonder if it's, it sounds as if it might be substantiated, of many poems that have been cut out of the magazine and are taped or scotch-taped above people's desks or glued to their cupboards or whatever. It's fabulous to think of a poem having that kind of impact that one wants to have it as part of one's furniture. Yeah, I think that's true. And I do it a lot with the poems in The New Yorker and also the cartoons. <laughs> I cut them both out. W.S. Merwin is a poet who has an extraordinary capacity, I suppose, to be in touch with the natural world. I think it's something that is a feature of many poets' work, some kind of fellow feeling with the animal kingdom, for example. But I think W.S. Merwin seems to be spectacularly in touch with the world beyond himself. Yeah, I think that's exactly what this poem is all about, the amazing way that he's, every time he looks at the fox... There's some response within him, whether it's, you know, the fox is running and his feet start running or there's something very connected between the two of them. It's almost a lover relationship in a way. Now, these lines are quite long on the page. Do you um, hesitate at all about reading them aloud? I do. There's a line that says, high note held without trembling, without voice, without sound. And it feels to me a little bit like you have to do that when you're reading the poem. 
There is a breathless aspect to it. In fact, the phrase running on occurs in it. And of course, the poetry pundits among us will remember that that is a technical term Mm -hmm. for what a line does. It runs on over the end or over the turn of the line, the point at which the verse becomes a verse. So it seems to be almost a commentary upon itself. Yeah, it is. It's And it's like the fox running across the fence or running across the wall, I think. It does seem like a poem that talks a lot about itself in these little tiny moments. It's a poem that talks about contradiction, and it's full of contradictions, right? All of these descriptions of the vixen at the beginning are contradictory, comet of stillness. And I think the poem is trying to be fast and slow at the same time. It's trying to chase after the fox, but it's also trying to capture these moments that are kind of impossible to capture. Maybe you would be good enough to read Vixen for us. That's Vixen by W.S. Merwin, and it's read here by Mattia Harvey. Vixen. Comet of stillness, princess of what is over, high note held without trembling, without voice, without sound, aura of complete darkness, keeper of the kept secrets, of the destroyed stories, the escaped dreams, the sentences never caught in words, warden of where the river went, touch of its surface, sibyl of the extinguished window onto the hidden place, and the other time, at the foot of the wall by the road, patient without waiting in the full moonlight of autumn, at the hour when I was born. You no longer go out like a flame at the sight of me. You are still warmer than the moonlight gleaming on you. Even now you are unharmed, even now perfect, as you have always been, now when your light paws are running on the breathless night on the bridge with one end. I remember you. When I have heard you, the soles of my feet have made answer. When I have seen you, I have waked and slipped from the calendars, from the creeds of difference, and the contradictions that were my life, and all the crumbling fabrications, as long as it lasted, until something that we were had ended. When you are no longer anything, let me catch sight of you again going over the wall, and before the garden is extinct and the woods are figures guttering on a screen, let my words find their own places in the silence after the animals. That was Vixen by W.S. Merwin, and it was published in the December 26th, 1994, January 2nd, 1995, double issue of the magazine. As I listened to you read it there, Mattia Harvey, I was reminded of the very special relationship in their younger days between W.S. Merwin and the great English poet Ted Hughes, Mm. And one of Ted Hughes's most famous poems, of course, is The Thought Fox, yeah. also a poem about poem as animal, and the thought fox that comes into the dark hole of the head in the Hughes poem and uh, enters all our heads and minds. Do you think there's any connection between those two poems? I think definitely. I think that a lot of poets, when they do it well, they can project onto animals or they actually I think in this particular instance he's trying not to project necessarily he's trying to commune with the animal but I think that moment when we humans look at another animal is an important moment because it reminds us that we're animals and it also kind of puts us into a place of quiet and mystery that we don't get to be in a lot of the time. We had a fox that used to go past Sarah Lawrence College where I teach and whenever I was in workshop and the fox would walk by suddenly everyone would be silent 
and the moment was always kind of more magical than it had been before. Now, this isn't a fox so much as a vixen, which, Mm -hmm. of course, a female fox. It's a word that used to have some currency. I doubt if anyone in their right mind would say to anyone these days, oh, you little vixen. But there was a time when that would have been politically correct. Mm -hmm. Is there any hangover of that in the poem, do you think? I wondered about that. I mean, I think that that one moment you no longer go out like a flame at the sight of me feels like the moment where it could be a romantic connection. Yes. I mean, I think it sort of slips into that maybe a tiny bit, but not fully. I think that's probably right, because as I say, anyone with a hope of continuing a relationship with a a woman would probably not use the word vixen anywhere in her vicinity. That's true. What else would you like to say about it? Well, one thing that I think is interesting is the way once the fox encounter happens, the I in the poem, the human, starts to think about the way that the human is kind of boxed in boxed in by calendars and by Mm -hmm. creeds, even by the screen that the speaker is typing on. And I like that idea that there's a way in which seeing this fox jump over a wall is kind of making the speaker look at his own life and think about how he's kind of trapped in a way. Again, Vixen by W.S. Merwin, published in the December 26, 1994, January 2nd, 1995, double issue of the magazine. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. In the July 15th, 2002 issue of The New Yorker, we published your poem, Everything Must Go. Matea Harvey, you're going to read that for us now. But let me ask you before you do so, what was it that made you think this would be the one to read for us today? Well, it was interesting to have that one as the one that I thought I should read, because it does also deal with boxes. So um, there's a connection there, I think. Everything must go is a phrase that we recognize, of course, from the parlance of the closing down sale, the store perhaps full of boxes, Mm -hmm. indeed, boxes of items that they're desperately trying to offload on an unsuspecting public. And one of your great gifts, and of course uh, a feature of so much poetry, not only your own of the past while, is its capacity to allow that everyday phrase to suddenly resonate. I do think that's what poetry can do at its best, or at least that's sort of the delight of writing and reading poetry for me. Whenever I saw that phrase, everything must go, I would think, A, you know, what a sad and stark Uh, sentence that is, but at the same time that it seems sort of philosophically true in a larger way that we're all going to die someday. But it enjoys enjoys that playful 
area between the two the two mm-hmm. ideas. Now, on the page, there is a phrase here, three-deifying or three-deifying. I'm fascinated as to how you're going to pronounce that. <laughs> I'm going to pronounce it three-deifying, but I think you could go either way, right? Maybe it's my Irish accent, but do we deify or deify? I deify. You, you deify. might deify. No, you're probably right. You're probably right. I do so little <laughs> of anything related to the D or days. So what else might we say? The word baby in the poem, which as it flies by the listener's ear, won't be immediately recognisable as being capitalised, is indeed capitalised on the page. True. I think because also the things that are three deified, they get capitalised. I was copy edited into lower casing the God Trees and God Road. There's God Grass, God Trees, God Road. I think I wanted them all to be capital letters, but I didn't argue for it. When you are faced by a copy editor at The New Yorker, how do you respond to that? Do you think, well, they're probably right or there must be a reason? Or how do you respond to the idea of your poem being not only copy edited, but of course fact checked? It's an unusual experience, for sure. Actually, thinking back, I think I did speak to someone about it, and there must have been a reason that they convinced me. But they didn't convince me enough so that I didn't go back to the old way when I published the book. Let's hear the poem. Everything must go. Today's class, three deifying. God grass, God trees, God road. A sheet of geese bisects the rainstorm. The water tower is ten storms full. We practice drawing cubes. That's the house squared away and the incubator with baby. The dead are in their grid. Oh, the sleeping bag contains the body, but not the dreaming head. That's Everything Must Go by Mattia Harvey. Now, there's some extraordinary moments here. I love the throwaway aspect of that's the house squared away, which, of course, engages at once in the, um, I suppose, the geometry of the poem, but, of course, is coincidentally that everyday phrase for getting things tidied up and um, put away. Yeah, I think that I got very excited about thinking about a class in which there are strange equations and spatial diagrams being made and getting to sort of make that pun on the idea of the house squared away. Now, speaking of spatial diagrams, one of the glories of many of your poems is that they combine with a visual element. You have poems that include drawings. One of your books, I think every poem in it has a drawing. I don't want to say attached as an integral part of the poem. Would you tell us a little bit about the relationship, if you think there is one, between the world of poetry and the world of the visual arts? Well, I think poets tend to be people who look deeply at the world and want to describe it really precisely. So I think almost all poets that I love tend to be really visual in the way that they describe things. For me, it started to be this thing where I was really interested in titling And I thought a lot about paintings and how paintings have text titles and wanting to try the opposite, having image titles for a piece of text. And then it just went kind of haywire, and I ended up doing all sorts of other kind of visual experiments. But I really like thinking about how to calibrate the two of them, 
whether it's an illustration or whether it complicates the poem. Sort of like in graphic novels, you can have an illustration that kind of goes along with the text or it could be something that goes counter to it. So it's a long-term experiment, I think, for me. Yes, we're not surprised when Marcel Duchamp uses an extended sentence by way of description of one of his pieces to the extent that there is no dissociation between uh, the bride in this case and, and what we have come to know as that particular piece of art. So what's the logical extension of your engagement with this? At the end of the day, can you imagine perhaps having a poem that's all image? Well, there's one section in my most recent book where I think it is a poem that's all image. They're all ice cubes, but it is titled with text. So it's a series of ice cubes, and the first one has a piece of paper in it that says stay. And then the following ice cubes are people trapped or little chairs, miniature chairs trapped in ice. And I thought of that one as a poem. So maybe that was my first almost all visual poem. Sounds fabulous, Mattia Harvey. That poem that you refer to comes from your most recent collection, If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? Fabulous title. Mattia Harvey, thank you so much indeed for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Vixen by W.S. Merwin, as well as Mattia Harvey's poem, Everything Must Go, may be found on newyorker.com. W.S. Merwin's most recent book of poems is The Moon Before Morning. And as I mentioned, Mattia Harvey's most recent, If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? You may subscribe to this podcast, The New Yorker, Out Loud podcast, the fiction podcast, and even the political scene podcast in the iTunes store. And you may hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, thank you. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.